Well, if you've been along on this uh, journey through Genesis, you'll be relieved to know that today's sermon text is much less awkward uh, than the last couple of weeks. Uh, that, that being said, I would really encourage you, if you've missed out on any of those sermons, there are a number of ways to catch up. We, have, we podcast our sermons, so your favorite podcasting app will download them directly to your phone each week. You can also visit our website and listen to the audio. Or uh, you can go to our YouTube channel if you want to see the video. I clearly have a face for radio, so I'm not sure why you would choose video. But if that's your preference, you can go to YouTube and find uh, all of our sermons there. You'll notice that we did uh, skip a chapter in Genesis this week. I want to point out one thing from that passage that we skipped over. And of course, I would encourage you to read it and to see how the story of God's redemption continues to march on. But in Genesis chapter 20, we have a bit of deja vu. They enter the region of Gerar, and just like when they visited Egypt, Abraham tells Sarah to say that she's his sister. So we've seen this before in Egypt, right? So Abraham doesn't trust the Lord's protection, and so as they enter the land, that's what they do again, round two. And as I mentioned in the sermon on Genesis 12, Abraham uh, does claim that uh, she is his half-sister, and that may well have been true, but nonetheless, Abraham was being deceitful. And it worked out okay for him the first time in Egypt, and so he goes back to this same lie with King Abimelech in chapter 20 of Genesis, and again, we see that God intervenes. The same thing happens as what happened in Egypt. Uh, the king is, is so desperate to get rid of these people. He, he's struck with an illness, it seems. Uh, and so he's so desperate to get rid of these people that he sends them off uh, with sheep and oxen and some additional servants just to get them out of there. You know, it's not as if God doesn't care about Abraham's deceptive ways. I think he certainly does. But what we see in both of these accounts, is that God is intently focused on his promise, on his plan to save mankind through the line of Abraham. And so he, he intervenes and he protects Abraham from himself. And I think most of us have seen this happen at times in our own lives. Anyone who has walked with the Lord for any amount of time can look back and see how at times God protects us, even rescues us from ourselves. Maybe he forces us out of a situation, he closes a door on a job, he forces us to go through a challenging or painful season. Uh, But in hindsight, we can look back and see how it was really God protecting us from our own ambition, from our own greed, from our own desires, from our own sinful nature. And that's what God does for Abraham. And so we arrive in chapter 21 of Genesis with some amazing good news. This is the moment that if you've been following along since we first met Abraham, this is the moment that we've been waiting for, that we've been anticipating. God comes through on his promise. From Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 1. This is God's word to us. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, 
at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch this boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Gracious God, we are grateful for your word. We know that your word never returns void, that it always accomplishes that for which you intend. So we pray that you would accomplish your good work. In our minds, in our hearts, in our lives today, lead us to the cross. Give us faith to believe your promises. Comfort us with your presence. Fill us with your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider this account of Isaac's birth and of Hagar and Ishmael being sent away, allow me to point out three things that I think are made clear in this text. The first is this. That God's promises are certain. This has been a continuing refrain in Genesis, and it's something we can't overlook in our text for today. Verse 1 of our text says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years from the time the promise was given until it was fulfilled. Now in one sense, you might look back 25 years in your life and think that that time went fast. Many of us could say that. 
But if you are in the middle of that, waiting, praying, hoping for a child, 25 years might seem like an eternity. Some of you have experienced this, waiting and hoping for years that God would answer whatever prayer it is you are praying. These seasons of waiting, these times of trying with everything that is within you to keep on trusting, to hold on to that strand of hope are the most challenging seasons in our lives. What we see over and over in God's word is that he is always true to his promises. He may not carry out his promises in our timeline as we would like to see it happen or in the form that we would prefer, but he is always faithful nonetheless. God does not feel rushed in carrying out his promises. This is one of the most difficult things for us as human beings when it comes to our faith. God is the creator of time. Think about it. In chapter 1 of Genesis, we talked about God putting day and night, the sun and the moon into place, those rhythms that govern time. God created them. They are created. God exists outside of them. He's not bound by time like we are. Because God created time, because God is eternally existent, always has been, always will be, what that means is that God is never late. At the same time, nothing that God does is ever premature. God is always perfectly on time because he's the standard by which we understand it. Let's be honest, this isn't a, this isn't a profound idea, right? This isn't high-level theology that you have to understand Hebrew to get to. And despite its simplicity, this idea that God is outside of time and that he is always on time and he's never late, we need to be reminded of this. We need to, to hear this because we so frequently struggle to believe it. This is often where we run into that distinction between what oftentimes I'll call formal theology and functional theology. All of us would say, anybody who's a Christian would say that we believe that God's promises are certain. No Christian is going to deny that on paper. But then there's our functional theology. Those beliefs that we live out with our lives, and of course, functionally speaking, many of us deny the certainty of God's promises. Many Christians live like this world is all that there is, for example. Many live like their citizenship is here and not in heaven. Many Christians live like what happens today is of greatest importance. Many live as if it's entirely up to us to provide for ourselves. The list could go on, right? There, there are many ways in which our functional theology diverts from our formal theology, and we doubt, we deny that God's promises are certain. Isaac was born as proof that God will do what he says he will do. That God will do what he has promised. That God's promises are certain. The second thing that I think we see become more clear in our text is this. That God's presence is assured. God's presence is assured. Well, the first point about God's promises was focused on 
sort of the narrative of Isaac's birth that we've been leading up to for a number of weeks. The second point takes us to verse 9, where we find the ongoing tension between Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. And again, as I've mentioned before, none of this is surprising to us, right? We can see this coming. Verse 9, But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. There's some debate about what exactly it was that Ishmael is doing here. Our translation says mocking. It's probably the most common way that our English Bibles translate it. The ESV uses the word laughing, which actually hints at some irony in the language here. Remember, after all, Isaac is the son of laughter. The name Isaac means laughter. And so there's a little bit of irony here that Ishmael is laughing at Isaac, he's mocking him. The Apostle Paul summarizes this encounter for us in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, Paul says that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Whatever the offense was, whatever it was that Ishmael was doing to Isaac, Isaac's mother, Sarah, gets upset and tells Abraham to get rid of that woman and her son. Now remember, the only reason that they're involved in this whole mess to start with is because of Sarah. Sarah was the one who orchestrated this. Of course, we all saw this coming a mile away. You look at the mess that they created. This is not surprising. And so Abraham does what Sarah says. He sends Hagar and Ishmael away. We see in this text the ongoing consequences of Abraham's sin when he decided to take matters into his own hands. He now has to live with the reality that he has to send his own son away. And this caused, our text says, Abraham great stress. But God speaks to him and God says, do what your wife says. That God would take care of Ishmael. Verse 14, early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy, and she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. And as expected, the desert is hot, and Hagar becomes convinced that they're going to die. And so she has Ishmael hunker down uh, in the shade, and she goes a ways away because she doesn't want to watch her son die. But God hears the crying powerful verse and he appears to Hagar remember God appeared to Hagar once before when she was sent off into the wilderness and and he shows up again and he promises to protect them and suddenly a well appears in front of them and Hagar fills the skin with water and gives her son a drink God provides this life-giving water right there in the middle of the desert And then he renews his promise to bless Ishmael. And verse 20 is powerful. I love this verse. It says simply, God was with the boy. God was present with Ishmael, with Hagar. Isaac was the son of the promise, absolutely. The one through whom God would 
bring about the redemption of mankind, but nonetheless, God was with Ishmael. God's presence is assured. We've received that same promise as the children of God. You'll encounter this maybe most clearly in the Psalms. We could probably think off the top of of our heads a, a number of Psalms that speak of this promise. For example, Psalm 46 says, God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Psalm 121, the Lord watches over your coming and going, both now and forever. But we see it also in the New Testament as well, that comforting reminder as Jesus sends his disciples out to make disciples. He promises, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then Hebrews chapter 10, that great passage of scripture which proclaims that we have access to our heavenly father because of the blood of Jesus. Just as God was present with Hagar and Ishmael, he is present with us as well. And we as the church have a deeper appreciation of God's presence because of course scripture refers to this, to this gathering of God's people as the body of Christ. In other words, God's presence as we gather together. You want to experience God's presence? Gather with his church. Where God's word is preached and where his people gather, his presence is there in abundance. God's promises are certain. His presence is assured. And third, we're going to look at this text now through a a New Testament lens, through the New Testament's interpretation of it. And we see this, third, that God in his grace rewrites our history. Some of you may have heard the term revisionist history. I don't know if it's a phrase that started with him or not, but it was made popular by a journalist and speaker and author, Malcolm Gladwell who hosts a podcast named Revisionist History. And in his podcast, Gladwell looks back on historical events and asks the question of whether history got the story right. And what you might find, is, if you listen, is that there are many ways in which we tend to get history wrong. If you've been in my office, you know I have a love of books, and I was paging through a book this week that I have. It's actually a a high school civics textbook that I inherited from my grandparents. It was published in 1922. So it was before the civil rights movement in America. And let's just say it was a little bit eye-opening for me as I was reading through this 100-year-old high school textbook, how it dealt with issues like segregation. Promoted what can't be called anything other than white supremacy. We've all encountered this, right? If you're my age or older, you were taught some pretty one-sided history on a man that we know as George Armstrong Custer, the 7th Cavalry. Some of you are familiar with the tension related to history education on this. I remember basically being told to admire Custer for his bravery and not to ask questions. That was sort of the summary. But I remember I picked up a book when I was 18. I was working at a museum And I picked up a book that was in the little gift store and started reading a little bit different perspective on Custer than what I had been taught in school. 
some of you might remember this controversy. There was an album released in October of 1964 by Johnny Cash. The album was titled Bitter Tears. And it contained a song called Custer that was, uh, let's just say, cutting against the grain of the popular narrative and wasn't exactly friendly to the general. And radio stations across the country boycotted Johnny Cash's album because they didn't want to deal with the pushback. Things actually got so tense, Johnny Cash paid for a full-page ad in Billboard magazine that asked the question, why are radio stations too gutless to play this album? And then he bought a thousand copies of the album and he sent them out for free to radio stations so they had no excuse uh, to not play it. The reality is that the popular narrative, the perspectives surrounding what Custer and his men did, not to mention the Indian Wars in general, were being controlled by those in authority. They were being whitewashed. The narrative was carefully uh, managed and controlled to shine favorably on the U.S. government. Uh, they reported and revised history in a way to advance an incomplete narrative. Of course, if you've read anything uh, about Custer, you know that that's the case. And there, this is just one of thousands of examples of the battle that exists over who controls history, how we understand it. But the Bible contains a little bit of revisionist history. In relation to Abraham. This New Testament account of Abraham's faith, we'll read in just a moment, uh, shows us the power of God's grace to recast, to reframe, maybe even to rewrite our own history. Romans chapter 4, Paul gives us a little history of Abraham. And, and as I read these verses, I want you to think about whether this is true. Paul looks back on Abraham's faith and uses him as an encouragement to us. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 18, says this, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then listen to verse 19. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And then verse 20. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Think about what Paul says in verses 19 and 20. Without weakening in his faith, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Is that true? Maybe Paul didn't read Genesis, right? No, we, knew, we know that Paul read Genesis. Did Paul just forget about all the times that we've mentioned over the last couple months of, of Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands, the times they doubted at God when Abraham laughed in the face of God, his promise? Was Paul unaware of the whole Hagar and Ishmael mess when he wrote these words? Of course Paul knew all of this. 
He knew the ways that Abraham was inconsistent in his trusting of God. What we see in Romans 4 is the power of the gospel. The way that God's grace rewrites our history. But by God's grace, wavering faith is solid faith. That's really good news. By God's grace, an an inconsistent and, and struggling life is credited with the righteousness and consistency of Christ's perfect life. That's the only hope of the Christian. Our hope and our salvation and our eternal life and peace rests not on our own unwavering faith, but on the perfect obedience and truly unwavering faith of Christ, whose sinless obedience and perfection are, Scripture says, imputed, ascribed, assigned, credited, gifted, to you and to me, just as it was with Abraham. The the Romans 4 version of Abraham is admittedly much better than the actual Abraham that we see in Genesis. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the good news. That, That is our hope that when you breathe your last, you will be seen the way that Abraham is seen in Romans 4. Not for your wavering, struggling reality, but covered in the righteousness of Christ. Child of God, his promises to you are certain. His presence is assured. And by faith alone, his grace rewrites our history into something beautiful. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, your promises are certain. And we know that you're the only one of whom that can be claimed. And yet, God, we struggle to trust. We struggle to believe. We struggle to hold on to your promises. We are so prone to go our own way, to trust in what we can see and what we can feel and what we can experience, rather than trusting in what you have promised. We confess our sin. We confess that we allow the the pursuits and the cares of this world to push you aside. So we thank you for your grace to sinners. Thank you for the assurance you give, for the promise of your presence. That just as you rescued Hagar and Ishmael, you are present with us. You provide living water to all who will receive. And we're grateful, God, that just like Abraham, you promise to look back on our wavering faith, our seemingly persistent doubt, and see only the perfect faithfulness of Christ. It's because of him that we have true hope. So strengthen our hope and our faith today. Help us to cling only to what Christ has done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.